quite a few years ago now, uh, early on in my practice, I was sitting a long period of intensive retreat in Burma in a rural retreat center there. And uh, as time passed, the hot season came around. And if you've been through the hot season in Asia, you know it gets really hot and dry and dusty in this particular area of the world. And the center began to, to empty out. So a lot of the yogis that had been there drifted off back home, and uh, the senior teachers that had been there guiding us also went off to do other things, and some of the more junior monks were left in charge of running the center and teaching the yogis. So it was kind of a time for these up-and-coming teachers in training, young teachers, to have a chance to uh, experiment in a low-risk environment (laughs) with with giving Dharma talks. (laughs) (laughs) something which we also go through here, Um, which was actually very delightful and very inspiring. And I heard some uh, interesting things from some of these these younger teachings, uh, younger teachers that didn't uh, always get mentioned by the senior teachers. And one of the teachings that I heard in that time that has stayed with me was from a young monk um, who presented a simile at the beginning of his Dharma talk, and I'm going to present it tonight as well. So he described a precious mountain called called Mount Wepula, which was part of the landscape in the ancient world of the Buddha. It was a tall peak near an important city. And apparently it was famed for being uh, very rich, shot through with with strains of ore, precious metals, uh, precious jewels and gemstones, the things that uh, human beings tend to be very uh, enamored by. So I imagined it as being kind of like the mother load in California or down in Mexico, this land that's just really, really rich where there's these valuable materials lying just on the surface of the, the land. And it was said that the earth of this mountain was so rich with treasures that even a blind child wandering aimlessly across the mountain and picking up rocks at random could return home with their pockets full of a king's ransom let alone a strong adult with good tools and working knowledge of rocks and minerals and excavation. But on the other hand, if that strong, capable adult were handless or somehow deprived of the use of their hands or deprived of their hands, um, they wouldn't be able to take even the smallest treasure home from the mountain just simply because they wouldn't be able to pick it up despite their strength, despite their tools, despite their knowledge. So the pivotal faculty for gathering the treasure there was just simply hands. You know, if you have hands, you can do the work. You need some way to take hold of what's valuable, pick it up and put it in our pocket. The tools and the knowledge and the strength that we might have certainly can be helpful with mining there, but in and of themselves, without the the aid of our hands to make them work, really not so useful. The young monk then went on to explain the simile in detail, um, which obviously a lot could be drawn out from this fairly simple simile. So that mountain full of the precious treasures is, you know, it's an analogy for the Dharma with all of the treasures that it offers us, the the treasures of uh, loving kindness, patience, Uh, awareness, wisdom, peace, freedom, everything that it has to offer. And the the child, or the prospector, depending on how we view ourselves, is is us, the yogis, that are on this quest for precious treasures in the Dharma. But what really struck me about the simile is that those all-important hands that the monk explained were the, the really pivotal tool in this endeavor represented the faculty of faith. But that was really the essential tool needed to gather the benefits of the practice, just simply (laughs) faith. And for me, I think this was a case of um, hearing the teaching when I was ready to hear it, which so often happens for us. It's it's so... um, interesting and amusing how we can come on these retreats, some of us year after year, uh, sometimes multiple times a year for many years, and hear a certain teaching over and over and over again. 
And somehow, you know, it takes us 10 or 20 or 30 years for one of them to really click and that light bulb to go off. So it wasn't that I hadn't heard teachers talk about faith. It wasn't that I hadn't read about faith. I wasn't aware of this particular aspect of the practice. But at that time, I didn't really think of myself as a particularly faithful person. I wasn't particularly faith-oriented. That wasn't really part of how I approached my spiritual practice. Uh, In fact, it was quite the opposite. I've I've been trained as an engineer. Uh, At the time, I'd been working as an engineer relatively recently. Um, Very technical work. I have a very literal mind, a very unpoetic mind. (laughs) And uh, there was really no place for faith, as I saw it, in my practice. It was not really something that I was interested in exploring at all. Um, What attracted me to this path of vipassana practice, of insight practice, as I think it does for for many of us, is its very um, empiricality, the empirical nature of it. That there is this explicit invitation to explore and to confirm for ourselves what's really true. But for some reason at this time, hearing this simile about faith, it gave me a little bit of a start. It gave me a little bit of a jolt. It caught my attention somehow, and it started off a long and ongoing process of exploring for myself what really is faith, what is really that quality, and why is it so valuable in practice beyond kind of this conventional, everyday, Western sense that we tend to have of it as this kind of uh, blind faith, just simply accepting beliefs because they're fed to us, they're part of our tradition, they're in our culture, whatever it may be. And over the years since then, I've really come to appreciate more and more the accuracy of the simile, just how spot on it really is, how accurate it really is, how much to the point that our entire ability to do this practice and to benefit from it really does hinge on this quality of faith. So it's an incredibly important and supportive attitude to bring to our practice. At times I found great comfort remembering the simile um, because there are so many times when we feel like a blind child wandering at random through our practice. So it's, it's very comforting and reassuring to take refuge in this idea that, okay, well, we've still got our hands. <laughs> it's okay. We still have some uh, kernel of faith that gives us confidence to be here and to do this. And at other times, you know, there may be times when we do feel like something of a seasoned prospector. We do feel like we've you know, done a certain amount of study, done a certain amount of practice, we've acquired tools and skillful means and developed some proficiency in using those in our meditation. We kind of know what we're doing. But it's still helpful to remember that as much as we may have done this, as, as skilled as we may feel in our meditation, we still need, need to make that just very simple and humble movement of, of reaching down to the ground and picking up just whatever it is that's there in front of us. Faith is first in the list of wholesome mental factors that we find in the Abhidhamma and the teachings on the Buddhist psychology. So there's this very elaborate set of teachings um, in, in the Buddhist psychology which describes everything that can arise in the mind, exactly how the mind functions in very uh, subtle and specific details. And very, the very first factor in the list of wholesome mental states that we can experience, which there's a slew of these mental states we can experience that are, are beautiful and wholesome and lead to happiness, the very first of those is faith. It's at the top of the list. So it comes before mindfulness. It comes before non-attachment, non-clinging. It comes before loving-kindness, it comes before equanimity. All of these other qualities that are the direction and the reward of the practice, faith is at the very beginning of that list. Also in, in the very key teaching on the five spiritual faculties, these different factors that are really the key ones to develop, to move us towards wisdom and understanding. Um, again, faith is at the top of the list. 
before energy even, effort, before mindfulness, before concentration, before wisdom. So we see in the teachings um, over and over again how faith is presented as the starting point, the launch pad, the launching off point for everything else that follows in practice. And especially here in intensive retreat, where all we're doing 24-7 for the time that we're here is practice, is, is working to cultivate awareness as much as possible. The, the issue of our faith and trust in the practice becomes very central, very important. Um, just by its nature, being in the setting really brings that to, into relief. How are we holding being here? How are we relating to it? Which we keep pointing back to again and again checking in with the attitude of the mind towards being here. So we come to see how our attitude in practice is just as important as the practice itself. Or we could say that our attitude towards practice is really inseparable from the rest of our practice. It is an integral part of our practice. So how we approach what we're doing here will profoundly influence what we do here, how we experience of it. So if we have an attitude of confidence and trust, if we feel like, oh yeah, I can do this, you know, it's, it's difficult, but it's manageable, I can just take the next moment, um, you know, I have faith in this process, then our time here is going to unfold in a very different way than if we have an attitude of, oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? <laughs> I've bitten off more than I can chew. I just can't face another moment of awareness. You know, d- depending on how we're relating to our time here, that attitude will, in a, lo- in a large way, to a great extent, uh, shape how our experience unfolds. The attitude creates the reality in a very uh, significant way. Years ago, there was a... Um, Simpsons cartoon that my husband cut out and uh, showed me when I was just uh, starting my practice and kind of struggling through the early days of practice. It was just a little three-panel strip. And in the first one, uh, we see Bart Simpson sitting on the sofa watching TV, as he often is. And in the next one, his father pops into the room and says, I I thought you were supposed to be at band practice. And then the last one, we see him sitting there still watching TV saying, well, I wasn't immediately successful at it, so I gave up. (laughs) And, you know, this can, this can very much inform every aspect of our lives. You know, how, how we feel about what it, what, we, what it is that we're doing really shapes what it is we're doing. It's an integral part of it. This is why so many of us um, uh, kind of flirt with practice, you know, sometimes for a long time before we able or we're able to really commit. Where many of us, we, we flirt with practice for a shorter or longer period of time and it doesn't come easily. We're not immediately successful. So we, we don't keep on with it to where we can really gather the benefits. There's not the faith there that it's worth persevering through all of the inevitable difficulties of launching a meditation practice. So after hearing the simile about the, the hands of faith, Uh, I did some more studying, uh, some more reflecting on faith, and it became clear very quickly that the Buddha is not talking about the kind of blind faith that I usually associated with that word in the way that I heard it used, which is another aspect of this tradition that is is so refreshing. Um, In so many religious traditions, especially in the modern world, we find ourselves caught in the situation where where faith and logic... (laughs) are really in opposition. There's a real tension there. And the definition of faith in some traditions may even be that it's not logical. That that's actually a defining feature of faith, is that it can't be uh, justified on the basis of logic or evidence, but it has to be simply accepted just for itself, this kind of blind faith. But this is not the quality that the Buddha was talking about when he spoke about faith. He called this kind of blind faith, faith false faith, not real faith, but an, an impersonator of faith, uh, faith that was not based on anything substantial and reliable other than just really the desire to believe in and of itself, kind of uh, belief for the sake of belief, which he did not regard as genuine faith. 
there's a, a nice uh, sutta where the Buddha was reportedly sitting and talking with a group of elder Brahmins in a community he was visiting. And there was a young Brahmin who was only 16 years old that had come with this group of elders named Kapadika. And despite being still relatively young, um, his elders had a very high opinion of him. They reported to the Buddha that he was very learned in the Vedas, uh, had memorized many teachings, was good at reciting them, had a very keen, sharp mind. And during the course of their conversation with the Buddha, uh, the Buddha was discussing various points with the elder Brahmins, and uh, Kapadika kept wanting to insert himself into the conversation <laughs> and kept kind of butting in, the, the, this kind of young hothead. We get this image of him. And the Buddha actually chastised him a bit. And he said, Kapadika, you know, uh, wait until your elders are done speaking. Wait your turn. <laughs> but eventually it was his turn to speak. The Buddha turned his gaze to, to Kapadika and um, he put some very good questions to the Buddha about the nature of faith, about the nature of truth, and about... Uh, the, the appropriate way of guarding and seeking truth on our spiritual path. So the Buddha at one point in the discussion had this to say about uh, guarding truth. Kapadika asked him, how does one protect truth? How does one safeguard truth? The Buddha said, if a person has faith, then they protect the truth by affirming my faith is this, but they don't draw the conclusion only this is true and anything else is wrong. This is the, one, the way that one safeguards the truth, the way that one protects truth. And then the Buddha later in that conversation goes on to give uh, Kapodika actually quite rigorous uh, advice for how to go about finding a reliable teacher uh, to actually observe the teacher for quite some time, to uh, put them to the test, to see if they are espousing ideas or demonstrating behavior or speech that's connected with craving, that's connected with aversion, that's connected to delusion. And only after a very careful and very uh, discerning examination of the personal qualities of the teacher, then finally placing their faith in that teacher. But then once we, we have found a teacher that, that inspires our confidence, that we see walks walks the talk and seems to have something really important to say, then devoting ourselves to, to learning and practicing with that teacher to see where their teachings can lead us. There's a, a nice uh, wrap-up to that discussion with Chanki, or, or I mean with uh, Kapadika, where he says, um, you know, essentially, boy, I used to think that all you bald-headed guys walking around in robes were really, like, didn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> But now you have inspired me with respect and appreciation for uh, the followers of the Buddha and the teachings of the Buddha. And he ends up going to the Buddha for refuge and becoming a lay follower. So this is just one of many places in the suttas where we find the Buddha encouraging a skillful attitude and practice that's very different from blind faith, this very kind of attitude that really attracts so many of us, which we might call... Uh, open-minded skepticism, or skeptical open-mindedness, either way. So on the one hand, not to be so open-minded that all ideas and all beliefs appear equal to us. We can't discriminate in a healthy way between what's uh, skillful, what's wholesome, and what's not. But then on the other hand, not to be so skeptical that we're not open to new information, and we're not uh, willing to adjust and to modify our views and our beliefs and our faith uh, when evidence contradicts them, when the facts on the ground don't support them. So just as in everything, this is another place where the Buddha is really pointing us towards the middle path and how we're relating to the teachings, how we're relating to our practice. This is true in the, the larger sense, sort of the conventional sense of our philosophical beliefs, and views and opinions. And it's also true in the very intimate scale of the practice that we're doing here. So we come into retreat with certain ideas, with certain beliefs about ourselves, about the Dharma, the teachings, the practice. And then we do the work. So we have this, this working hypothesis that we come into retreat with. We can think of it that way. And we go along for a while and we practice and inevitably we see things that we haven't seen before. We get some new information. 
we realize that there's more to it than we thought. Or we may have had mistaken ideas about things, things that don't actually match up with what we're finding. So can we be open to taking in that new information? Can we be open to receiving it? Can we be open to letting it inform how we understand ourselves, how we understand what's going on here? Can we be willing to let go of old ideas that we find are really not quite accurate? They don't serve us so well anymore. For those of us that have been doing uh, this a long time, this is a very humbling process, right? (laughs) It's kind of like each retreat that we go to, we get to have the experience of being proven wrong (laughs) about whatever it was that we believed coming out of the last retreat. You know, so we go on one retreat or we do a certain, you know, period of practice at home and we learn certain things and come to certain conclusions. Then inevitably we get to that next retreat where it's all blown out of the water and we realize, oh, okay, that time... I thought I had it, but now I realize, okay, it's actually like this. And that happens a few times. We go through that cycle and we start to get that there's a lot to learn. (laughs) There's a lot to learn. So this attitude of open-mindedness is really helpful in not reifying ideas that we have, not getting stuck in them, being open to to continuing to learn. Um, A big part of this practice, I was discussing this with a yogi at the Forest Refuge last month, a big part of this practice is learning to tolerate uncertainty, learning to tolerate not knowing. It's so much easier to convince ourselves that we know. (laughs) The mind likes that, it likes to know, it likes to have certainty. But the more honest we are about uh, the truth of what we're seeing, the more we come to realize that it's going to be a long time before we really know. So this quality of mind that's open to learning, open to learning from the present moment is what we might think of as faith. The quality of mind that trusts that experience has what we need to learn in it already, that trusts the reality before us, that it doesn't have to be anything different from what it is. That trusts that this moment has everything in it already that we need to awaken. And that confidence, that faith, helps us to be able to really settle into the moment, which it is a huge leap of faith to be able to be willing to just open to the present moment. There are so many other things that we could be doing with this present moment than being with what's actually happening. There are so many thought worlds that we could be constructing and inhabiting and uh, living within that, uh, for the most part, are much more exciting than what's actually going on in reality, right? So it's a leap of faith that it's, it's worth letting go of all of that, worth letting go of everything that the mind entices us with to actually just be here in the present moment, which in general is remarkably unremarkable. <laughs> the present moment is very just undramatic for the most part compared to everything that our minds create for us. So every moment of awareness is an act of faith, the faith that it takes to recommit to doing this and to being here, to recommit to just being with this, whatever this might be. The less faith faith that we have that this moment is enough, the less we can fully connect, the more difficult it is to fully connect. Um, It's easier for the mind to get caught up in some kind of struggle, some kind of manipulation, some kind of striving, which may be very obvious, you know, at times it's very obvious to us when the mind is struggling, trying to, to manipulate experience, but it can also get extremely subtle. This is another uh, part of the practice that reveals itself as we get deeper in. We can start to see very um, insidious, almost invisible ways in which the mind wants to somehow take charge of experience, somehow direct experience. We're so deeply conditioned to do something about the present moment. This is the habit that we've all learned, you know, that we need to fi- constantly fix the present moment. It, this is really in our bones. So we've been deeply conditioned not to trust the present moment. It was kind of part of just being a biological organism, you know, constantly moving away from pain, constantly moving towards pleasure, constantly scanning experience to see how we can enact that rather than just being with things as they are.
as we go deeper in our practice, then we are able to trust the present moment more. We're able to, to let go of that conditioning or let it go more and more. But we always need to remind ourselves, um, especially after we've been doing this, this for a while, we can feel like, well, I've gotten here again, or maybe we've gotten here the first time and it's taken so much faith to get here. It does take so much faith just even to get here, let alone to stay here and continue to do this that we can feel like, oh, I ought to have this faith thing down by now. I do have it down. I really have faith. I have confidence in being here. Um, only to find that we get here and, you know, doubt rears its head in one form or another. You know, why, we, we can think to ourselves, well, why am, why am I here? You know, if, if there's all this doubt still, or if there's any of this doubt still. But it's, faith in the present moment is a lot like a marriage. You know, it's not something that, uh, we take that vow and then we live happily ever after. You know? So just as in a relationship, um, our relationship with the present moment is something that we have to recommit to continuously over and over and over again. And this is very often what we need to hear, the encouragement that we need. This is arguably our main job description. <laughs> it's to encourage you to trust, to trust your experience, to trust the present moment, to make that leap of faith over and over again. I know it's what I most often need to hear in my own practice when I check in with my teachers. Mostly I just need to hear it's okay. You know, keep going. You know, this too, this is also part of it. This is a, a nice little passage from Wendell Berry that I like a lot. He says, it's, there are, it seems, two muses the muse of inspiration who gives us inarticulate visions and desires, and the muse of realization who returns again and again to say, it is yet more difficult than you thought. It's the willingness to hear the second muse that keeps us cheerful in our work. To hear only the first is to live in the bitterness of disappointment. He is a good Dharma teacher, Wendelberry. He is a good Dharma teacher. So it's our faith and our trust in this process that keeps us cheerful in our work. You know, if we, if we stay caught up in our, in our desires, our longings, those inarticulate visions of what we hope to get out of the practice, then we can get very disappointed, <laughs> can become very grim. But if we can listen to the voice of that second muse that reminds us, okay, show up, show up again. It's more difficult than you thought, just keep going. That keeps us balanced, that keeps us cheerful in the work. It keeps us able to connect with a sense of ease and joy as we struggle through it and do the work that has to be done. A characteristic of faith is that it brings clarity to the mind, which makes sense. When we feel confident in our practice, then we're not distracted and discouraged by every little thing that comes up. We're more able to see clearly, okay, now it's this, now it's this, now it's this. So there's not that constant second guessing of what we're seeing or feeling or what we ought to be doing in the present moment, how we ought to be working with it, you know, what, we, what we ought to be doing to manipulate the present moment so that somehow it's okay. So we often find that the greater our faith becomes, as it deepens, as it grows, um, the simpler the practice becomes. The practice becomes increasingly simple and also more joyful and relaxed. And some of you uh, have been starting to talk about seeing this progression in your practice, how the more simple we can become with how we are, just taking the present moment as it comes without struggling or striving, then there's this real ease, even through the times that are unpleasant, because we're able to trust that we don't have to do the practice. We don't have to make it work. So the more that we're able to trust that the present moment has everything that we need already there in it, um, the more we're able to just show up. We've, this becomes the, the, the um, tone of the practice. It's really just about showing up and being willing to be here. And we start to see how the practice does itself. The Dharma does itself. The unfolding of the practice is actually completely impersonal, just like everything else. It's kind of funny how we can come into practice feeling like somehow the, the laws of nature that govern every other experience, the impermanence, the impersonality, somehow don't apply to spiritual practice, but it's actually governed by exactly the same <laughs> laws of human nature as everything else we experience. It's actually delusion 
in addition to just being a big burden, to think, well, I have to do it. I have to make the practice work. I have to make my time here productive. I have to make it worthwhile. I have to make it pay off. I have to get wisdom. I have to get insight. I have to get enlightened. Um, You know, that's a lot of I. (laughs) And it creeps in very easily. Um, If we feel like being here, doing this work is some kind of personal project and that our success or failure as yogis or human beings rests on getting a particular result out of our time here, um, aside from that being just a lot of suffering, it really clouds our vision of what's going on here. It makes it harder to really see what's actually happening. Uh, Steve and uh, Mark and I were were laughing a little bit in the staff room a couple days ago about how arriving at this place of just surrendering (laughs) to the process uh, for many of us, arguably for most of us, is really a path of last resort. <laughs> like, this is the point we arrive at after we've just been so beaten down by striving that we just give up. <laughs> you know? And that's, you know, again, that's also not a personal failing. It's just that this is how we've been conditioned, you know, especially in this society, this Western modern society we live in where it's so much about doing and achieving and being proactive and being active um, in various ways that we're conditioned to be on the offensive all the time, many of us. So we, we, in some ways, we often have to become just convinced that this approach is not going to work in this particular endeavor. It's not, that's not the strategy that's effective here in doing this work of, of spiritual growth. But it can also be a great relief to realize that awakening is a completely natural process. It really is. It's a completely organic process when conditions are supportive. And it's a great blessing, um, great good, good fortune in life to have conditions, all of us, whatever our conditions might be, whatever difficulties there might have been for us, we've all had conditions that were supportive enough to get us here and to be able to do this, and to even have the desire to do this in the first place, which is so rare in this world. Some of you um, may know um, that my full-time job uh, these days is actually being a mom. (laughs) I have two uh, still relatively young children. Um, And for those of you that have have spent time with children, if you've raised children of your own, or, or nieces, nephews, been around young children, um, it's amazing to see the, their process of growth, that process of, of moving from being this tiny little thing, you know, to becoming this big thing that can do all sorts of stuff. And um, learning to walk, acquiring language, becoming more and more sophisticated in, in what they can do. And it's, it's really a big mystery. As much as uh, science can explain these days, like why does a child suddenly... Uh, feel the inspiration and have the ability to acquire language you know, or, to, or to get up on two feet off of the floor. It's really something of a mystery why that happens and how it happens and when it happens. And it's, it's also a delusion to, to think that we can make that happen. We can't really. We can provide supportive conditions, of course. We can encourage them. We can, we can provide good, a good environment to encourage that. But it really has to come from inside. It has to come from the child themselves. We can't give them that, that innate desire to grow and develop in those ways. It has to be there in them, that innate pull to grow. And that happens um, certainly not because they decide to do it, certainly not because they have any understanding that they should do it, or uh, want to do it in some kind of intellectual way. Uh, It happens without knowing it, without wishing it, without even understanding it. And as we walk along the path, we come to see that uh, it's the same with our spiritual growth, the same with this growth in the direction of awakening. Uh, Why does that happen? We may have certain ideas about that, but really, um, in the same way, it's a mystery. There are so many of us in the world that don't ever feel that pull to move in this direction, to continue to evolve and grow uh, in this particular dimension of our lives. But in some of us, something awakens, that innate pull 
towards wisdom, towards awakening, for some mysterious reason, when conditions are ripe. Those inarticulate visions and desires begin to call to us, just like that pull to walk or the pull to talk. It's there latent in us, just simply because of our humanity. So it's not because we're somehow uh, superior human beings, or even that we've invited it, or wanted it, or had any idea that it might be in there. But just because there's this innate potential in us as human beings, it's a natural development when the conditions are right, to move in the direction of wisdom, to move in the direction of awakening. And just as with walking and talking, we don't have to make it happen. We can't make it happen. We just have to allow it to happen, not interfere with it, let nature take its course. There's a great quote from our teacher, uh, Sayada Upandita, who passed away recently, um, but I think I repeat in almost every Dharma talk that I give. (laughs) He said uh, that every moment of mindfulness brings the yogi one moment closer to enlightenment, whether they like it or not. (laughs) Which just so greatly captures this um, completely organic and natural aspect of the process that is not outside the normal laws of human nature. That if we do this practice in this way, then it will move us in a certain direction. We can't avoid it. We can't make it happen and we can't avoid it. It's just nature playing itself out. So in some sense, it really doesn't matter what we think about what we're doing here. And, you know, we come on, <laughs> we come on retreat with all sorts of different ideas about what we're doing here. So there are some of us that have, you know, read or heard teachings about enlightenment. And we may really aspire to have some, some longing, desire to realize something called enlightenment. And there's others of us that come here because we just like to kind of take a deep breath and let off some of that burden of stress that we carry around in our ordinary lives. And, you know, all of those are good aspirations, whatever our particular vision of what we're doing here may be. But there's also this, this greater organic process that's playing out that will move us in the direction that we're going, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, regardless of what we might think about what's happening or what we want to be happening. The organicness of this process is described in the teaching on, okay, don't panic, transcendental dependent origination. Uh, Some of you may have heard about. It's the counterpart to uh, mundane dependent origination. Um, That's a lot of words, but the the dependent origination, mundane dependent origination, just describes the the cycle of how we get caught in suffering. It's just a a re-articulation of the Four Noble Truths that, you know, we receive sense experiences, uh, we have some impression of liking them or not liking them, then we react, we want more of them, we want to push them away, we get confused about what's actually going on, which then leads to more confusion, and it just kind of goes round and round and round, um, which is just what we're observing in our minds all day here, basically. (laughs) That's not anything particularly uh, arcane. But then there's this counterpart teaching on transcendental dependent origination, which is this other cycle that we can, we can jump onto. So it's possible to jump off of that wheel that's bringing us around and around and around into obsession onto another track, a different track that's leading towards peace, that's leading towards freedom. And uh, it all begins with faith. Faith is the jumping off point that gets us out of the rut that we've been stuck in of obsessing and suffering and onto this other track that's leading us in a radically different direction. So the Buddha said, faith has a supporting condition. It does not lack a supporting condition. And what is the supporting condition for faith? Suffering. So I found this a really interesting teaching, really uh, instructive, that suffering is the cause for the rising of faith. The cycle then continues on there from the arising of faith. Um, Faith gives rise to joy, which gives rise to rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration, uh, knowledge, disenchantment, dispassion, and finally, freedom. So there's this whole cycle that's set off through the arising of faith, just through the recognition of suffering. 
So there's a little bit of of a refinement there because it's not just that any suffering will give rise to faith. You know, most of the time we're suffering and it's not particularly inspiring us with any faith. What, what gives rise to faith is when we suffer with awareness. <laughs> suffering with awareness, which is another way of saying realizing the first noble truth. So when we really take in, when we really register the truth of our suffering, the truth of suffering, that's when faith awakens in the heart. It, when we see ourselves stuck, when we see ourselves going round and round in that cycle of whatever it is that's driving us crazy, and we really get a clear picture, maybe even just for a moment, of what the mind is doing to itself, that's when that spark of faith may awaken in the heart of, there's got to be another way. (laughs) There's got to be a plan B. There's got to be some other option, some other way of doing this thing that we call our lives. And that spark has already awoken in all of us here, because we wouldn't be here otherwise, (laughs) whether we realize it or not. Often this can happen without really realizing what's going on. It's part of that natural, organic process of awakening. Of course, the difficulty is that we've been conditioned to do everything possible to avoid this truth, (laughs) to avoid this truth of suffering. Pretty much everything that we've experienced and been taught and trained to do in the course of our lives up until encountering the Dharma has been conditioning us to avoid, to avoid, to avoid that truth of suffering, which is why that spark doesn't awaken spontaneously in all of us as we go through our lives because we, have, we develop such good um, defense mechanisms to suffering, to recognizing suffering. Even when we hear these teachings and there's the, there's the intention and the aspiration to really come to understand suffering, still it can be difficult to actually approach it, to actually come close to it and see it in that deeper way. So a huge part of our practice here is revealing all of those barriers that keep us insulated from really taking in the truth of suffering. And faith is really helpful in this respect as well. When we bring that quality of faith to the present moment, when we can really sink into the present moment, then we can see. We can see that suffering is really there. We can see the truth of dukkha. We don't have to make any particular effort to get that. Dukkha is always there. It's just a question of connecting fully enough, uh, intimately enough, truthfully enough with the present moment to be able to really take it in deeply. So we just need that trust that the present moment already has everything that we need in it. And we just have to show up. We can hear this instruction to uh, open to the moment, to relax into experience, accept experience, And it's easy to get the impression from those kinds of instructions that it's in some way a a mandate to meddle, to meddle with experience, that um, somehow we have to maneuver the mind, do some kind of mental gymnastics to get the mind into a position where we're somehow okay with suffering. Um, But this is not what we mean by opening to suffering. Opening to suffering does not mean convincing ourselves that we're okay with suffering. So accepting and opening is different from being okay. This is a really important point. We can accept and open to and relax into experience that is totally not okay. (laughs) Um, And it's important that we do. If we have faith that there's really everything that we need in that experience of suffering, that everything that we need to learn is right there in the not okayness, that we can just be with that and accept that. Of course, we will not always be uh, suffused with perfect faith. Uh, It doesn't happen that way either. And we can pay attention to that. This is another part of the attitude of mind that we can become aware of, is what is the quality of faith in the mind? Where are we placing our faith in any given moment? So in any given moment, there may be that real sense that Okay, what we need is right here in this moment. Can we just open to it? Just take it as it is. Or there, in the moment, there may be a real faith and confidence that what we need right now is 
few minutes or a few hours or a whole day of fantasy or another, uh, you know, sitting period of rehashing some memory or going over our to-do list again. You know, these are also things that we place our faith in. Uh, there's a great quote from Edward R. Murrow who said that anyone who isn't confused really doesn't understand the situation. (laughs) And a lot of the time we're confused, but this is also something we can become aware of. So again, it's not that we need to talk ourselves into having perfect, continuous faith in the present moment, but it's really to become sensitive and to become honest about where are we placing our faith. Um, There may be times when we can give ourselves a little reminder. Okay, what we need is here. Settle back into the present moment's experience. But there may be times when there's a real, again, despite our wishes, despite our intentions, despite what we might think about what we should be doing, the, the faith is with that fantasy, or the faith is with that planning mind, or it's with whatever it is that it feels really pulled to. So at those times, we can let that be the practice, to see where we're placing our faith and what happens when we jump on that thought train that we felt like was going to give us such relief and such gratification, where does it let us off? What's the next station when we we come to again? And to just be really clear about how that process plays out. This is what will help help us to really come to understand the, the importance of faith and where we place our faith. And then too, we can those times when we feel like our faith in the moment, our faith in the practice is weak, we can draw on the support of the community. We can draw on the support of the Sangha, on the atmosphere here. I remember my early retreats here, coming out of retreat at the end and having people come up to me and say, uh, thank you for your practice, uh, which which now I often say to other people and being like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't talk to you. I didn't even look at you. I don't, didn't even know you were here until just this moment. <laughs> How was I supporting your practice? But this is another thing that over time we really come to appreciate, like just showing up, just being willing to, when we come to the hall, it's really, it's not all about us. Or when we're walking outside or moving mindfully around the center, it's not all about us. That, that has a profound impact on those around us. So through our practice, we do support each other. We inspire each other without even looking at each other. It's this kind of magical aspect of, of being in retreat. And we can draw from that. You know, when our reserves are low, when we're flagging in our confidence, when we're flagging in our trust, whether we're, when we're wondering whether maybe we should have done that yoga retreat instead, we, we, can, we can look around and see, okay, everybody else is still at it. <laughs> you know, can I just feel another breath? You know, kind of just feel this confusion, this aversion, and just keep going a little bit longer. There's a beautiful teaching um, called The Shorter Discourse on the Cowherd. And this is a little bit of a, of a paraphrase of it. But uh, the Buddha said that uh, the wise cowherd of Magadha at the end of the rainy season, trying to get his herd across the swollen, rushing waters of the Ganges, first looked about at both shores, at the flow of the water and its depth, and skillfully chose the best place where there was a natural ford to cross the flood. The wise cowherd here, of course, being the Buddha, who's charted out this path for us, the, uh, the best ford, the best place to get across the stream of suffering. Then he first sent the powerful leaders of the herd, the strong bulls, the confident bulls, into the water, to breach the waters and to reach the further shore. And they safely reached the other side of the river. And after them, he sent the other strong, uh, tame members of the, the herd, the other mature, strong members. And they too, following along after the first strongest members of the herd reached the other shore. Then after them, he sent the, the average members of the herd, the ones that were neither strong nor weak, but they too followed along after the leaders and safely reached the other shore. And then he sent the younger members, the weaker members of the herd across, following along behind all the others. And they too safely reached the other shore. And then finally he sent the young calves, recently born, that were unsure in their footing, unable to cross the waters on their own. But the young ones, recently born, followed along uh, 
the calling of their mothers, following the sound of their mother's calls. And in that way, they too cut the stream of the Ganges and safely reached the other bank. And he said that these, these young calves, the recently born, are like those of us that are following along through faith, following along through inspiration, uh, the examples of those that have gone before us, uh, the teachings that inspire us. And through just following that, that innate pull of our, our inspiration, of our faith, that we too can reach the other shore. I'll just end with this. Uh, this is another poem from Wendell Berry. It's called, What We Need Is Here. Geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon as in love or sleep, holds them to their way. Clear in the ancient faith, what we need is here. And we pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and to eye. Clear, what we need is here. So this quality of confidence, quiet confidence and faith in what we're doing here, is what helps us to be quiet in heart and clear in eye and to see the moment that's just in front of us. Let's sit for a moment. We pray not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and an eye clear. What we need is here. So there's time for some more awareness and movement. And then please join us again at nine for the last sitting. If you feel like the momentum of your energy is picking up a little bit now, uh, you might see if you can extend the day just a little bit more than you have uh, in the first part of the retreat. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.